If you've been following along this summer, you know that we have been re-preaching some sermons. This is the last of that. We are in our second 10 years with you, and the first 10 years we did a top 10 uh, sermon re-preach, and then in the second uh, 10 years we've done another uh, top 10 from the last 10 years of re-preaching sermons and hearing how they sound in a new day. Um, almost all the ones I've preached have come from more recent, 2017, 2018, so I forced myself to go back a little farther and see some different sermons, and I can't say that this is my all-time favorite sermon at all, but it seemed like an important one because it, in the sermon I give my testimony, which is not something uh, we, we do around here very much. You don't hear people give their testimony and uh, bear witness to their faith uh, very much anymore, and so uh, I thought it was important uh, to say some of this again. And uh, the other thing that it struck me recently, Russ and I were doing something and I was in a frustrated place and, and negative place. And I said, if I didn't love Jesus, I would not be doing this. And I've thought about that sentence and we both laughed and um, but I find that to be true so often in my life that sometimes what I'm naturally compelled to do is not the Jesus way. And so I was really recognizing in that moment uh, that, that the call of Jesus on my life is very strong. Russ reminded, I said to Russ this morning, I'm not sure this is my favorite sermon, that I, maybe I should have picked another one. And he said, that all he remembered about me preaching this sermon uh, seven years ago was that I was critiqued that I gave you too much Jesus. So here it comes. Hold on. Buckle your seatbelts. It's a Jesus day around here. The text is from Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17. Uh, Chapter 17, uh, verses 16 through 34. Let me say just a little bit about this text before I uh, read it to you. Um, during Jesus' ministry, he did not settle at the synagogue. He was out and about where the people lived and worked and played. In fact, Jesus did not call one single disciple at the synagogue. He called disciples at the dock at the tax office and on the hillside. Luke in chapter five even goes so far as to say that Jesus invited Peter to follow him while they were fishing. In many ways, what I'm about to read to you, I think is Paul's finest preaching. He's having to adapt. He's communicating to people who do not share his Bible. These Athenians don't know the scriptures. The Bible is not their story. The Torah is not their story. It has no authority for them. Of course, as people belonging to the way, like we are, the Bible is our starting place, our launching pad. But Paul says to these people, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. It's actually an underhanded compliment he's giving them. In other words, he's saying, I appreciate your piety. All of these people were religious people. They just weren't his kind of religious. 
And he says, you guys, you're very spiritual. I see in your statues and your shrines your spirituality, and I applaud that. He says, but as I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What you therefore worship as an un unknown, this I proclaim to you. And he tells them the gospel story starting at the creation. So he's around very religious people, but they are not his people. And here's how it goes. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. They debated with him, and some even said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign deities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. And then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. God is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is God served by human hands as though God needed anything, since God gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, God made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and God allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for God and find God. For in God we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are God's offspring. Paul is really giving his testimony to all of these very religious people. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And at that point, Paul left them, but some of them joined him and became believers. You've heard the ancient story. Let us listen now for the word of the Lord. Paul shared his witness, his testimony, so I share mine with you today. Growing up in Clinton, South Carolina, I did not know a Jewish person. And a Muslim? Give me a break. About the closest I came to interfaith work was my own mother. She, along with her father's side of the family, was Roman Catholic. And in small town South Carolina, that was interfaith. For many, you know, they were Catholic. And there weren't many Catholic, Catholics around those parts back then. There still aren't, except the Spanish-speaking ones, migrant workers mostly from Mexico who have boosted the roles of the little parish at the expense of English-speaking Catholics 
in town who now can't understand the priest's thick accent. Yet they continue to go each week for nothing else, if for nothing else, than to receive the bread and the wine, a ritual of healing and cleansing and forgiveness and salvation. I'm sure that my father's Protestant family had to swallow hard almost 70 years ago to allow this Catholic in the clan, into the clan. My mother kept her tradition, her practices, her church, even until the day she died. But since Catholics are Christian, you know, I don't believe that really counts for interfaith work. And since my college and seminary experiences were all focused around and among Christian themes and Christian people, and my postgraduate school employment before coming to Park Road were opportunities in small town South Carolina and in a more conservative church in Birmingham, Alabama, my connections until coming to Park Road have remained fairly well steeped in Christianity. So you see, I am, though I'm technically over middle-aged, but only barely because I plan to live to be 100. Though I am technically a little more than middle-aged, I am but a young adult in my interfaith life. I'm only about 20 years old in interfaith living, working with and among people of other faiths. I honestly think one of the best things our church has done has been to offer the office, office space for MECMEN, our local interfaith network on our campus. I simply love that just about on any day you may see someone on our campus with a yarmulke or a hijab head covering walking along with someone with a clerical collar or wearing a cross around her neck. I love that Russ and I have both preached at Temple Israel and that we've shared a, po a podium with several imams in our own community center. I love that I have had the opportunity to prostrate myself toward the back left corner of our gym because that's the corner that faces Mecca. And I have prayed with my Muslim friends and then they sat with us during our prayer time even with our instruments blaring, which must have been uh, as uncomfortable for them as it was for me being on the floor, bowing to the east, while listening to words being rattled off that I made no sense in my ears, and yet I trusted that God understood every word. I love that I am continuing to learn that my way of greeting the Imam, like I greet any of you with a hug or a handshake, that would be non-pandemic greetings. I love that I have learned that I cannot greet the Imam that way or any Muslim man. And I love that the Imam was polite enough and kind enough to tolerate me and get the message back to me without embarrassing me or berating me. I love learning the sensitivities that come with interfaith work, everyone working so hard to find the commonalities so we can worship together without offending. And I love that we have to pay attention during interfaith events as to what kind of food we will serve. There's a heightened awareness in interfaith work that takes so much work 
and so much listening and so much discerning to live together in this pluralistic society where we are stamping out fear of the misunderstood other every single time we work and worship together. When I preached this in 2013, Russ and I had just hosted a big dinner at our home for Mech Men. It was a fine china dinner with candles and crystal and everything. Black people and white people sat at our table, Christian and Jew, clergy and laity, religious and those that claim to be more spiritual than they claim any kind of organized religion. I had the menu set in my mind, you know that menu that works out great for me, which involves Russ doing most of the grilling. We were gonna have grilled vegetables and uh, grilled pork tenderloin until the day before the dinner, the day before when it dawned on me, I'm not exactly sure who all is attending this dinner and maybe pork is not my best choice in an interfaith gathering. So quick menu change to an elegant, and fancy chicken with grapes and gravy dish, and we gathered. We sat at our dining room table, Russ at one end, I at the other. I was feeling so interracial and so interfaith. I was so proud of us. We clasped hands. I made sure I was not next to a Muslim man. We clasped hands and Russ offered a prayer, thanking God for food and friendship and the many blessings which are ours, the bounty before us and the gathering of friends old and new. And then he was closing out the prayer and he said, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. <gasps> I mean, I didn't gasp out loud, I don't think. But I am sure that the name Jesus was ringing loud in my ears and I wondered how it sounded in everyone else's ears. He said, Jesus. I've learned when not to say in Jesus' name because everybody at that table was not praying in Jesus' name. I've been sensitized to that in our interfaith gatherings he said it. There's a Jew sitting right there. Not a practicing Jew, but a Jew nonetheless. And then it kind of dawned on me, but this is our home. This is our table. This is Russ's prayer. We've invited these friends, old and new, to break bread in our place. And this is the particular people that we are. In my own home, around our own table, it is completely appropriate to claim faith as particular. For us, the particular is Jesus. Claiming Jesus as a particular way does not negate another way. It does not condemn another way. It simply claims what I hold to be true and right and good, that Jesus is the only way I have ever known. 
If we are to ask about the church being alive and transformational and necessary in a pluralistic society, we've got to figure out how to claim our particular message within a scope that is far greater than just Jesus. We have to learn how to be tolerant. We have to learn how to listen. We have to learn to speak our truth as our truth without tearing down another person's truth. We have to learn how to claim our particular faith without casting others into a fiery hell. We have to learn how to claim our particular faith without arrogance or pious self-righteousness. We have to learn how to claim our faith while intently listening and respecting another faith we have to learn how to live together, people of many faiths, all seeking the truth of the one source of mystery and holiness, peace, and love. The text I read from the Acts of the Apostles, Paul was standing in a place surrounded by many idols. Apparently, this is where the men of Athens was housed. And as he walked around looking and listening and asking questions, he simply spoke his truth in perhaps one of the best sermons he ever preached. So on this little sacred patch of ground labeled 3900 Park Road, where Muslims and Baha'is and Christians and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and Mormons and Unitarians and people that attend the Center for Positive Living all of these groups gather right here at 3900 Park Road all the time. And isn't it great? And in the midst of all of those faiths that swarm our campus, I get to be like Paul today on this Sunday morning at 11 o'clock and say, tell you all about Jesus. I don't remember a time when I didn't know Jesus. I learned his stories, I learned the books of the Bible, I learned the people of the Bible. They became my story. And I had two main goals in my life. One was not to disappoint my father, and two was not to disappoint Jesus. And I know that those two are supposed to be reversed, but my father had a quicker grounding policy, I guess. It dawned on me that I don't think this was in 2013, that I had ever given my testimony in church. It's weird to be an over-middle-aged woman with 30 years in ministry under my belt. I can't recall giving my testimony. Jesus is the only way I have ever known. It's interesting, I went back and re-listened to that sermon. I got choked up saying it. Jesus is the only way I've ever known. I've been to mountaintops with Jesus on youth retreats. I was at church every time the doors were open because my parents knew that that was important. I grew up going to mass one Sunday with my mom and to a Protestant church with my dad, a little white clapboard conservative Southern Methodist church on the next Sunday. I went back and forth until at the age of 13, I joined my dad's church. And I spent my growing up years worried about people going to hell because they didn't know Jesus. It was honestly a burden for me 
for most of my growing up years. I remember I sat back on the right side about two rows from the back, which was actually pretty close to the front because the church is really small. And every summer we would have a revival and every revival had an altar call. And every year, every year I would go down front sweet little thing that I was because all I did was try not to disappoint my dad or Jesus all the time. And yet I felt this compelling pull towards Jesus. The altar at the front of that little church is a semicircle with a padded place for kneeling. And every single summer, you know, with every head bowed and every eye closed, who needs to renew their faith? Who needs to accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior? My hand would go up every single year. And I would head down to the altar to pray. How many times can you give your life to Jesus? Apparently a lot of times. It has dawned on me we should probably do it every single day because the way of Jesus compels me to act and do things in ways I would not and could not do it on my own. I worried that my sons may have never heard me share my testimony. At the time I wrote this, they were 14 and 16 years old. I love Jesus. I claim him as my Lord and Savior, and I ask to be forgiven. I've done it all over and over again. And I worry that we've not done enough to teach our children, my children, the particulars of our faith. I think that sometimes we have a real grasp on what we do not believe. I think that they have an understanding of what it means to be inclusive and accept all people, and that is so very important, and I did not have that sense growing up. And so in our effort to teach our children and young people to be all-inclusive, I just wonder, have we missed some of the particulars of our faith? I can be a Jesus lover and a Jesus follower and be open to others having a different path to God. But we do have to learn to claim our way. And my fear is that in all the effort to be inclusive, I might forget how to sing my song. I have a song and this is how it goes.
I know that song, it is in my blood. When I claim Jesus as the way or the answer, note that I don't say he is the only way and the only answer, but he is my way and he is my answer. We have an Areopagus of our own. Christendom has been declared dead. Christian cultural values are no longer the undisputed norm. Mainline Protestant churches no longer dominate our culture. And the fastest growing religious affiliation today is nuns, N-O-N-E-S. We cannot deny that we need new ways of speaking to a skeptical world. It's not hard to imagine we are in Paul's place. We are visitors in a new city, and Jesus is my story, and I'm sticking to it. And I dedicate my life to him again. I dedicate my life to his way. And I dedicate my life to an inclusive love that pays attention to what meat I serve. And I dedicate my life to an inclusive love that is aware that I should not touch a Muslim man. And I dedicate my life to an inclusive love that pays attention to when and where I pray in Jesus' name because I think Jesus would want that. So it is in the name of Jesus that I offer this sermon today. May it be so. Amen.